Welcome to the Future of Application Security, a podcast for ambitious leaders who want to build a modern and effective AppSec program. Doing application security right is really hard. Now I'm going to help you build a better future of AppSec at your company by curating the lessons from the leaders. I'm your host, Harshal Parik, CEO of Tromso. And without further ado, let's get into it. Hey everybody, thanks for joining us live. Uh, I've got Tanya with me uh, and here, my name is Eric, uh, here to talk about choosing application security priorities. And some of the themes of this conversation will, will include software supply chain, code to cloud, business context, metrics, and there'll probably be a little bit more. So Tanya, I appreciate you joining. I think last time we had a webinar uh, was back in maybe November, so it's good to see you again. So nice to see you, Eric. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. And um, so, you know, any anytime I get a chance to to meet with Tanya, I, I folks, I always I always take the opportunity. And so, one of the cool things I, I get to hear is some of the cool stories that uh, she has based on her experience in the field. And so, Tanya, you were actually telling me a story before this call that I thought was kind of interesting. Um, would you mind kind of sharing it for the group? Yeah. Um. So I was. So I consult with different clients and help them build their AppSec programs. And there was one client where. <laughs> I got them to install uh, an ASOC, so an application security orchestration and correlation tool, sometimes called an ASPM, application security posture management tool, but basically it's a tool that gives you metrics. And I was like, I wanna see if there's any trends or ways where you know we can see like our best bang for our buck, like where are the most problems? And so their full-time AppSec person who was really junior had been looking at the tool and he's like, I don't see any changes or I don't see a trend. I don't see a thing we can do. And so I started playing around with it and I'm like, oh, let's sort by technology stack, like the programming language and framework. And he's like, why? I'm like, I don't know, let, like, let's sort by everything and see if anything stands out. And so we sorted by language and framework. And basically they had almost 200 apps and they had six PHP apps and basically 75% of all their vulnerabilities were in those six PHP apps. And I was like, oh my gosh. Oh no. Um, <laughs> yeah. And they had it spread out amongst their teams. Like, so it's not like one team was the PHP team. So because it was spread out, like we, we'd searched by team and we'd searched by this and that, et cetera. And we couldn't figure out until we saw that. And so, obviously secure coding and PHP lessons for everyone. Um, and we got some laughs for two of them and we ended up rewriting one completely. It took a few months to decide that because I was like, mm. like, because it was so bad. And we're going to talk about software supply chain later. It's every single dependency was a complete dumpster fire of awfulness. And we like looked at it and looked at it. And I'm like, I think we're going to have to rewrite it or have like really critical vulnerabilities forever. Yeah. And so, yeah, um, it's weird, well, right? And so when you're like, do you want to come talk about metrics? <laughs> yes, please. <laughs> yeah, so I, I love that story. It shows the power of metrics and the power of, you know, what you can do with like an ASOC and an ASPM when you get all the data together. You can sort of identify these trends and yeah, make more informed decisions about where are you going to invest your spending from an AppSec perspective. And so perhaps a, a kind of good way to kick off the slides that I have here to just kind of frame the conversation is, you know, for those product security teams and application security teams out there that are looking to start something new, get something off the ground, um, one of the very first things they do is select some sort of testing technology of some type. 
And um, I've, I started actually going through the data that the Tronzo, and I'm kind of just scratching the surface. Uh, but one of the things I tried to identify those companies that meet certain criteria. You know, they had multiple tools. Um, they had at least, you know, I think it's 100 developers. Uh, and based on some additional criteria, try and get some data about like what testing tools are they using uh, or services. And I came to this, which I thought was kind of interesting. So what we have here um, is a list of uh, testing technologies or services. So infra is short for infrastructure. So think, you know, scanning a host system, scanning containers, uh, uh, IAC. Then you have software composition analysis, SAS, DAST, IAST, and, and bug bounty programs that are, that are managed by a third party. Um, so taking a look at this spread, I was I was pretty surprised um, in, in some respect. So, I mean, you know, Tani, is there anything in particular that uh, caught your eye or stands out or thoughts that you had in terms of the, the, the deltas between these? So I was surprised I asked was zero. I, I thought it would be higher than zero, but I have seen like challenges mostly just with implementing it, like instrumentation taking so long that it's like we can't afford the engineering time. Yeah. Like, like the tool is awesome and cool and amazing. Um, but if it's going to take three months per app and you have 200 apps, it's like we can't afford that. Um, yeah. So it depends. But I, I was surprised SCA was the highest. I because I remember years ago when I started an AppSec, I wanted us to buy an SCA tool. And the government governmental organization that I was working for was like, no, that's stupid. Why would we care? We didn't even write that. Right. I'm like, I know, but it's in our co it's in our app. So if we have all these dependencies and they have vulnerabilities, isn't that bad? Shouldn't we maybe like try to get a to like secure versions of the and they're just like, we're just trying to get a handle on stack analysis. Wow. And I was like, okay. But now like I think it's important though. What do you think? Yeah, um, absolutely with SCA. So, I mean, I think one of the biggest reasons SCA has really taken off, at least in the, in the, the data that in the customers that we're working with, is um, the supply chain security. It's, it's a massive topic. It's a massive area. And quite honestly, I think it's spawning up a whole separate industry. Um, a good a good indicator of that is if you look at job titles, right? So now I'm actually seeing people with job titles like VP of supply chain security and, and these sorts of things. And um, so it's going to become a specialized area. Uh, but an easy place to start with supply chain is like, you know, what technologies exist today. And, and SCA can really help with that. Um, so I think that's probably why SCA is the highest. Um, so and then the other thing I thought was kind of interesting is the abundance of sort of infrastructure tools. For us, you know, this is things like host scanning and, and, and these sorts of things, but it's also like infrastructure code, uh, cloud asset scanning, and these sorts of things. And um, I, I was honestly surprised at how much there was, but, you know, reflecting back with, you know, cloud native technologies and so forth, it, it kind of makes sense. Um, I love SAST, so uh, I was a little bummed to see it's, uh, what's that, third on the list, but hey, it is what it is. Um, For SCA2, I wonder if, like, so I feel like it's gone like this in recent years. And I wonder if the White House executive order from the United States, they demanded an S-bomb, so a software bill of materials, which is good. Um, it's good to know what's in your app, but I find it less useful 
than running a software composition analysis or like software supply chain tools to tell us which dependencies are scary and which dependencies aren't scary. And ideally, can any of these be exploited in the way we're using this dependency? Like, can you tell me, am I calling the scary part, right? right. And having an SBOM is nice, but it doesn't tell us all the transitive dependencies. So like a dependency that calls a dependency and it, doesn't tell us if there's a problem with any of them. I'm like, it's nice to know the ingredients, but if some ingredients have poison, I'd like to know that more. Yeah, yeah, the SBOM comes from like a good a good place, but like you, know, you could run it in two different tools. So it can both produce SBOM against like the same app and have very different results. So like we're getting inconsistent results. And then you have the you know, pushback from big uh, tech industries um, against the, the government uh, memo that, you, that you're referencing saying, hey, we can create these, but no, no, nobody knows what the heck to do with them. So I can give them to somebody, you know, what do we do? I, I don't know. So. Yes, no one I know has been asked for one. Oh, really? Interesting. Yeah. During Log4j, um, which we can't help but talk about, um, then people asked for, do you have this one vulnerability or do you have this one like Java logging library? But all the rest of the time, I've never heard a customer that cares about that. There's like, have you had a pen test? Did you actually fix the things the pen test found? But yeah. like, I feel like software supply chain security is also like more than just checking your dependencies as well, right? Like every single thing that you use, like whether it be your IDE or your development environment or your CI CD pipeline and the 4,000 configurations that you put in over the past six months to make it just right. All those things count too. Uh, absolutely, and it's interesting. I think um, Gartner recently uh, did a presentation at their, their security summit, effectively saying open source software is like, like the biggest risk to application security. And um, you know, that's certainly the case with a lot of customers that we work with. Um, one of the folks uh, that we worked with um, had over 100,000 CVEs stemming from third-party components, like in their applications, as well as components within the containers that they use to package and deploy those things. And so they were set with this problem of like, okay, what do we do with this? What is our remediation game plan? And so just to add a little context, um, well, then I'll define context. Uh, remediation game plan for me is just, is just what I'm using to describe as like, what, is the, what are the actions you're going to take to make the most bang for your buck in, in reducing your risk? And so that's basically yeah. it. And I think a big part of being able to do that effectively, if you have this many vulnerabilities, is context. Like what information do we have outside of, hey, this thing is vulnerable, do we need to be able to efficiently tackle this? And so um, I'm curious, Tanya, from your perspective, like what are some of the examples of, of context, additional information that you think is helpful that you, uh, in, in sort of tackling a problem like this? Oh my gosh, Eric. <laughs> I wish that every security person thought like that. Um, so for instance, is it is this app public facing or is it internal facing? Is this app behind a WAF or not behind a WAF? Does this app have sensitive information or not have sensitive information? Is this app subject to um, legislation or compliance requirements? And are we meeting them? Are some of these CVEs making us not meet that? I feel like there's tons of things that have to do with context. And I try to put all of those together before I push really hard to get something fixed. Yeah. What about you? Like what other contacts could we have? 
Yeah, well, I, I think the answer to that, um, I'll share what, what we were able to do with our customer to kind of get them uh, come up with their own remediation data plan based on the data that they have. And so what's interesting is like, in order to get context, you, you have to have data from different sources. And uh, one thing I'll just, I'll stress and underscore here is that if you're only collecting vulnerability data, like that's your only source, even if it's just from diff two different tools, you're not getting enough context to be able to act on that data because those tools themselves are limited. And so, you know, what we helped this customer do was, was collect some of the information that you referred to there. Um, the first one was, you know, how many vulnerabilities do we have? Like just what's in our portfolio? The second thing we did was, well, the security tools themselves are telling us severity information. So let's start with that. Like, what are the most critical ones? And so from there, they were able to kind of filter it down. After that, they just said, okay, which one of these has a known exploit? So like a lot of CVEs out there have no known exploits. You could argue some of them are best practices and it's just, you know, fairy dust. Uh, but some of them are legit exploitable issues that, and it's publicly known. So let's filter it down a little further. Once we had that information, the next thing we thought about is, okay, this is the reality of the things that we're using and, and we cannot control, um, you know, those developers, their open source developers, we cannot control that community, but what can we control? Like we can control what action we, we take. And so based on that, which of those components actually has a fix available? And so they reduced it a little bit further. And last but certainly not least, and Tanya, this goes to, I think maybe the, one of the first things you said was like, is this thing actually running in production? And so in this particular case, since the customers using containers, they were able to identify what components were in what containers and whether that container was deployed based on like access to like registries or their cloud environment. These things that don't necessarily produce vulnerabilities, but that developers are using as a natural part of their day. And so what was cool about that is, yes, there's a lot of risk there with 100,000 vulnerabilities, but with what they can do today, uh, and feel confident about. They were able to narrow it down to 375 vulnerabilities where they, they knew they could act on. And so does that address all the risk? No, but does that give you data-backed reasoning for what action you can take today? 100%. Um, yeah, so that's why I kind of think a little, a little bit about context. Uh, I don't know if you have any kind of thoughts or feedback on that. Yeah, like if there's a known exploit, that's way scarier because <laughs> So this might sound a little harsh, but it means idiots can exploit it and not just really smart people. So a lot of the people I work with or customers and teams I work with, Eric, yeah. they're not facing nation state threats. They're not like, like a nation state doesn't care at all about them. And they're like, or, or, for instance, like my company, we have profile, we have like little videos we play on the internet. No nation state gives a crap what we're doing. <laughs> and so the threats that we face are like, you know, accidental, you know, someone that thinks they're a cool little script kitty, maybe someone trying to steal something, get something for free, but we don't have advanced threat actors as far as I know in our like threat model for my company. And so then as a result, it's like, okay, so that's part of the context too, right? So if there's no exploit available, I'm like, cool, dummies can't use it then. They'll have to think and make their own exploit and making exploits is hard. And so then it's like, okay, well, we're probably okay without this one versus I have this conversation a lot, Eric, with companies and I'm like, does your AppSec need to be perfect or just really good? And the yeah. difference between perfect and really good can be a million bucks, right? And so 
usually they're like, of course, we want to be the best we can be. I'm like, well, if you have a bunch of known criticals and prod, you're not aiming for perfect right now. So maybe next year we can aim for that. And this year we can aim for let's reduce as much risk as we can as quickly as we can and then worry about perfection next year. And after a little while, you, I'm like, does China know who you are? Is Russia angry with you? No. I'm like, OK, so let's like, do you run a power grid? Um, do you control whether the water is poisonous or if it's clean? No. OK, uh, it's like you show cute training videos on the Internet, Tanya. Your risk is like moderate. It's not. Do you know what I mean? If anything, the only reason we have purple has some risk is because I wrote a book about AppSec and people like to show off how cool they are and try to hack the lady that wrote a book about security. Yeah, Other yeah. than that, no one cares what I am doing. <laughs> but, but so like when you talk a lot about of customers, people care what you're, yeah. you know, a lot of people care about what you're doing, but you know, the, 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 the state sponsored uh, actors, maybe, maybe not. Probably not. Yeah. Probably not. And, yeah. and so if you add that to the context too, that can help all your customers as well. Right. Because if they're facing nation state threat actors, you probably want to fix more than 375 yeah. because like, even if there is no known exploit, perhaps your customers still like facing advanced, very determined threat actors. Um, but anyway, I'm sorry. Yeah. Like that's, that's awesome. part of the context and, too. And uh, that, that comment about perfection, uh, you know, it reminds me of the saying progress over perfection. I think that's a growth mindset type of statement. Um, that's a really healthy way to approach this because I mean, at the end of the day, it's not like this is a static problem. It's ongoing. So um, with this issue, you know, here here we have a, a, an entity that was basically flooded with vulnerabilities um, and just realizing, hey, this this is we need to do something different. We need like a preventative control to help prevent introducing these sort of issues going forward. Um, are, kind of what are your thoughts on like what preventative controls can we integrate within the development process to help prevent introducing these going forward? Um, anyways, what, what are your thoughts there? Okay, so the first one's going to be super predictable and it's training or some sort of like lunch and learn for the devs to explain why they should care about this so that they're on board the train with us. Because if we just give them a brand new tool and tell them just use it and we don't show them how and we don't tell them why it's important, we'll have like lower adoption rate, which I'm sure you know because you've done lots of training. And then once we've told them, okay, so this is the tool we've picked, this is this, I like to get something where the devs can use it ideally from their IDE. And whenever they check code into the main branch, they get an email that tells them, you know what, actually, that version of that library you just added is, hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so that they know and they have the power. Well, it's still, because you spoke about context. So like if you're a dev, and your code's already open and you're already doing all the things, if you get a bug reported to you right then, it's easy to fix compared to if you don't hear about it until the pen test six months later, or it's already in production, you haven't worked on it in four years, you're like, oh my gosh, where did I put that code? Right. Um, so then you can fix it faster too. So. I like to have it as soon as possible. And I feel like the IDE or like checking when you check in your code to the main branch, I feel like that's the first place or what do you, what do you think, Eric? A hundred percent. That's like, you know, the, the DevOps or DevSecOps type of mentality right there. Like we want to get that information as quickly as possible. And so um, when we were working with our customer, you know, we talked about like what preventative controls do you all want to do? 
um, they actually went down a, a somewhat similar path. So, so they they selected some security testing technologies and said, look, you know, we got 200 source code repositories out there. We want you all to integrate these into your build build, build pipelines. This is how you do it. And so they give them like a three month period, whatever it is to, to actually make that happen. And then after that period of time expired, they wanted to verify, okay, who was actually doing it? And they got good traction. And to your point, you know, you know, the training was a big help, right? You know, you can generate all this data and throw it over the wall, but you can't expect people to do anything with it if they don't have the skills. So they took the time to make sure people actually had the skills. Uh, and it turns out they were actually able to query all the repositories. And we could tell them, look, you know, these eight repositories actually did not adhere to your policy. And so that spawned some interesting conversations between you know, some teams uh, within that organization. Uh, but yeah, I, I think integrating within the build pipeline, that instantaneous feedback, it's 100% necessary in today's world. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, if you just give them this pile of 100,000 vulnerabilities, I don't know about you, Eric, but I'd want to go home. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think, uh, yeah, that, that would make my head hurt, right? If I had hair, it would fall out. I tried to explain this to some security people before. I'm like, imagine someone, someone came up and told you, like, there's 500 bugs in this thing you wrote. And you're like, but it's only a thousand lines long. <laughs> like, it feels really bad. Like, you're giving yeah. them a report card that says F <laughs> and, like, a big yeah. two thumbs down emojis, right? Like this also makes them feel crappy and it might sound weird, but that matters too. Like how the security team interacts with the developers, how the tools make them feel. If the tools make them feel stupid and restricted and not able to get their work done, they're not gonna act like the same way as if it's like, okay, this is like a reasonable amount of work. I've just been assigned like six or eight things. I can totally do this in the time allotted, not feeling like I'm gonna run home and cry. Like it's important. Like. <laughs> Yeah, well, I appreciate you bringing that up because I know you've done a lot of work with uh, organizations in terms of helping with security champion programs, uh, helping influence security culture. Um, you know, I, I wanted to touch on that uh, throughout this. So, like, you know, it sounds like one thing that you do to help with facilitate culture between security teams and development teams is sort of piecemealing is not the right word, but my vocabulary is limited. Like piecemealing vulnerabilities to 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 the development team. Are there some other things that you've done to help uh, improve culture between those two groups? Absolutely. Um, so I have this friend named Nicole Becker and I've stolen this from her. So when she goes to meet a dev team for the first time, she goes up and she's like, hi, I'm Nicole. I'm from security and I come in peace. And then everyone laughs because they've all, she knows they've had bad run-ins before. Yeah. And then she's like, I, but more seriously, I'm here to help you get to the finish line on time with a more secure app. And so I'm your person. And I remember the first time I, as a dev, I had this woman named Alicia show up at our meeting and she's like, I'm gonna follow you the whole way through and I'm never gonna give up on you. And she really didn't. Wow. Like, and so I feel like if you can tell the devs, you can count on me. Like if you have a question, I'll answer it. If you need help, I'll help you. If I don't know the answer, I'll help you find the answer. And. I find like each time you do that, you build trust and you get a little more and you get a little more. Um, I was consulting somewhere a few years ago and I kept telling them like, I'm here to help you. I'm here to help you. And I let the devs help me pick the static analysis tool. And we did not pick my number one choice. We picked my number two choice, but it was still like a great tool and they loved it. And so like I went to one of their meetings later and one of the head guys was like, hey, so like, 
you know how you said you're like here to help and stuff and like you listen and like you're not mean like the other security people i'm like i didn't say that the rest of the security team's mean <laughs> like put it, they're my peers please <laughs> and he's like well and he explained basically like some other part of the security team had rolled out a tool and it turned out they'd rolled it out wrong they just hadn't configured it properly, but was to remove admin rights. But what it had done, Eric, was removed the ability to do local host and remove the loopback. And so what that means is, is that software developers, when programming in the IDE, they couldn't run their app and see if they'd fix the thing or not. And they only did releases to prod every two weeks. And you had to go through this high approval process even to release to dev. And so this made it so like they could not get their work done. And they're like, we told them it was like kind of a rocky ride and like it broke local host. And they said, whatever, you're not allowed admin. And so I explained to the security team what local host is and how like literally I would use it 50 times a day when I was a dev. I'd literally constantly run my app and check, okay, it looks how it's supposed to. Oh, this button's, oh, it's not working. I'll stop again. And then I fix it and I'd run it again. Like you've made, like you've literally tied their hands behind their back. And they're, oh my gosh. So they went back and re-rolled it out and fixed it. And the devs were like, yay. But like, wow. they felt like they couldn't tell the security team because they're like, well, it broke local host. They didn't ask what is local host. They didn't ask like, they're just like, yeah, but you can still program. So it's fine. And they didn't understand like, it's actually essential. And so you end up like where they feel like um like a little puppy that god's nose hit with a newspaper and it does they don't know why and they're like why are you so mean and so yeah yeah so that reminds me of um a a situation i had a few years back i I used to do consulting before i got into like product uh, development in the security space and so there was one situation where um development team and security team were very siloed and at one point a development team came up to you know a security architect and said hey look you know can you help me with this like what did you you're giving me these best practices but like how do i do that and the security the security architect responded with and i kid you not i'm sorry but i can't give you the keys to the kingdom and so the developer walked away like just baffled so um, yeah, that's not a great way to uh, build culture and, and collaboration between these two groups. Uh, and so I love the mindset that you're talking about, which is one of like, how can I help you be successful? And at the end of the day, people really appreciate that. Yes. Uh, and yeah. not breaking trust by saying, yeah, I'm here to help. And then they ask you for help and you don't give them help. <laughs> right? Like, like your example. I had one guy write back a link to the NIST website and said, read this, maybe then you'll know how to write secure code. Wow. Wow. Yeah, that, that was helpful. It's like the let me Google this for you type of snarky uh, links. Um, that's rough. Yeah, mean. Yeah, it is mean. It is mean. Um, so we've been talking a good bit about context so far uh, in, in this discussion. And so, um, you know, context can come in various forms. We talked about, you know, those we can get from security tools, those we can get from like our runtime environments, um, the systems that our development teams use, like uh, registries, uh, perhaps cloud native environments. Another example of context that I, I find interesting is just real world stats and data. And so there's a lot of security companies out there who will put out these annual stat reports. Uh, Verizon recently released their data breach report for 2023. Um, And there was a few observations I had in that. uh, Shameless plug, I I wrote a snarky article or blog post saying, you know, what a surprise hackers are going to hack, right? But um, there were some interesting uh, observations uh, I had in there. 
Um, the first, and I just wrote all three down. Uh, the first one was that, uh, you know, shocker, most attacks are financially motivated. So they said almost 95% were all targeting assets that process money of some kind. Um, the second thing I thought was pretty interesting is that web applications, and I think that's just a term that anybody uses for basically any network software these days, web applications were the top asset variety in breaches. And then when they were breached, it was like identity management related issues. So like, you know, stolen credentials, exploiting vulnerabilities, and like brute force attacks. Um, the reason I'm calling that out is because, you know, with an ASPM, you can actually um, use that to help identify and maybe perhaps reprioritize your vulnerabilities. So like if you're a financial institu institution or you have financial assets, maybe the vulnerabilities associated with them are going to be higher on your list. And more importantly, maybe the ones stemming from identity management controls uh, are perhaps more important than they were before based on this information. So I'm calling this out because I think this is another form of context that can help drive decision making. And so I'm curious from your experience, you know, ha having, you know, seen I'm sure a number of these annual stats reports. Kind of what's your what's your take and perspective on how context in these sort of stats reports can help or possibly hurt, you know, an application security program? So I feel having statistics like this is really helpful, just like you said, because we could prioritize. I don't really see a way that they would hurt other than if we ignore them and don't take heed with so the new OWASP API security top 10 came out and three of the new top 10 are authorization issues or no sorry access issues yeah authorization so like giving access to data or or functionality that you're not supposed to whether it be like at like calling the API at all or like getting back a bunch of data you shouldn't have and being able to access it being able to call functions you're not supposed to hmm. and I feel like that is probably going to be in 2024's Verizon data breach of the top three things. But when I see stuff like this, because I work at a training company, the first thing I think is how can I train all my devs on these yeah. so that I don't, I don't want to be a statistic, right? Or I don't want to be a bad statistic. Um, and so knowing like exploitation of vulnerabilities, stolen credentials, brute force. So with brute force, often on APIs, but sometimes on web app front ends, but usually it's the API behind that they're getting, they're trying to get to, right? So what yeah. can we do with like rate limiting, resource quotas, et cetera, to try to protect those APIs from that? So adding like extra technology or extra mitigations, maybe, or layers of defense around things that we know are potentially problematic or use of stolen credentials. There's um, products you can buy, or you can sign up for haveibeenpwned.com, which I have for all my, all my emails. And also I try to get everyone I know to sign up. It's free, <laughs> but there, there are paid ones um, that are even better in some ways. And so I feel like if we can take this and then adjust our AppSec program to it, it's better. I also, um, when I started in the government, they had this very complex risk analysis that took like weeks to do. And then my friend who is named Eric, <laughs> I've had a lot of awesome Eric's in my career go. in security and like, yeah, um, like a lot of them. I used to joke that they could call me Erica because they had three Eric's on the security team I was trying to join. Wow. And they're like, no, we can, we can, we can tolerate calling you Tanya. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it was only five people and three were named Eric. So that's a lot. Wow. <laughs> but this other Eric, <laughs> he, he came up with this. He's like four questions. 
And I've seen this um, from Mario Platt and a bunch of other people where, so like, is it sensitive, sensitive data or not? Zero or one? And then you add on to, is it on our mission critical list? Zero or one? Is it public facing zero or one? Is there any sort of like legislation or compliance zero or one? And you can add more things so the government had like more things to add. And then we'd add it up with a score. And then we literally had grids of you have to fix this, you don't have to fix that. And it, I would print them out and the devs would have it at their desk. Like, oh, the scanner said this, I'm one of those. I need to do these two things. And it made conversations a lot quicker. It wasn't perfect. But if you're one AppSec person and you have a hundred devs and there was no previous AppSec program, this yeah. is a good way to start, like triaging, if that makes sense. Yeah. You also like to have a nightmare list. So a list of the apps that we have that scare the pants off me, Eric. So it's like, oh, we have an app that's handling financial data and it hasn't had a pen test. And like I scanned in like a trillion things came up and there's this risk because it integrates with that and that's questionable. And so then I try, this might sound weird, but I try to spend like 25% of my consulting time on the nightmares because that's where you're going to get owned usually, yeah. right? Interesting. Like as I, a, I like that nightmare list. <laughs> but like as a pen tester, you're supposed to go and test the thing that they told you to test. But I would always tell them, you know what I would start with if I was a malicious actor? This thing that hasn't been updated since 2008. Yeah, I'd start here. So if I were you, I would do some scans and they're like, oh, that app is old. It's not important. I'm like, I don't know. It has personal data in it. Like, and right. it hasn't been updated in over a decade. <laughs> um, and so you can try to steer them by showing them points of like, you know, like a medic would say, like, let's stop the bleeding. I feel like there are parts yeah. in a lot of orgs where there's like bleeding, so to speak, and or like really high risk. And if you can run out and like put those out or even just throw wafts in front of them, it's not a perfect solution, but it immediately risks, uh, reduces business risk. Yeah, I'm going to, uh, I like that. I'm going to take the conversation on a slight tangent. You mentioned yeah. APIs and API top 10. Um, yeah. I, the reason I'm, I want to go on this tangent is because, I mean, APIs are everywhere. Like they're, they're driving basically every app these days, it seems. And, you know, pretty much every uh, Tromso customer that I work with, I know has APIs in some shape or form. And thus there's vulnerabilities with them. So, um, you know, you talk about like authorization. We talk a little bit about identity management. Are there any like, you know, particular issues you commonly see with APIs when you're working with folks or any security controls you're commonly recommending when you're working with teams around API security? Yes. <laughs> um, the first thing I usually do is inventory and find a whole bunch of APIs that they did not know were there. Or a version one is still running, even though they've upgraded to version two and version one's still in prod somewhere. Yeah. Pen testers have told me that they'll, they always test that. And like once per year, they'll find one and they're like, earned my paycheck. <laughs> Um, so inventory, find all the stuff you have. And then I try to do scanning usually like for dynamic scanning. I try to use like a, an API specific dash or okay. fuzzer, um, or like an IDE tool where it can help me and it's made for APIs. I find with like a traditional DAST, you have to basically take your Swagger, your open API file, and you have to edit it a lot to be able to get the DAST to understand it. And it takes yeah. tons of engineering hours. And I'm like, are you kidding? I'm like begging them to fix a vulnerability. You think they're gonna just make all these changes so I can run my scan? No, they're not going to. They're gonna tell me to go away. 
Um, so I try to get more API specific tools just for the dynamic analysis. If you have um, a pen tester on staff, they can use a web proxy and something like Postman and manually test and do a really thorough job. But if you're trying to do a whole bunch, getting an automated scanner is a lot better because it's faster. It's not perfect, but it's faster. I also want every single API that is public facing to be behind an API gateway so it can do authentication for you because that's hard. Imagine writing a separate authentication module for all of your microservices. It's only like 10 times the size for no reason. Um, and it can stop a lot of bots. Yeah. So I usually start with those things. And then, and then I, I dig in from there, like having a policy or like a secure coding guideline specifically for APIs. Like, and you want to prevent, you know, the OWASP API security top 10, but you also want to prevent the normal OWASP top 10, like the risks to web apps. Lots of them still apply to APIs. They do. Yeah, they absolutely do. And yeah, I appreciate you sharing that. I mean, simply because it's how abundant APIs are and how significant they are. And they are a unique beast. Um, you know, you can't just sort of say, oh, it's the same old, you know, it's the same thing as before. It's like, well, not quite, right? There's some, some unique differences. And identity management and access control are two big ones for sure. Yeah. Would you want to add anything on about APIs? Because like their data matters too. <laughs> their metrics matter too. Yeah. Um, let's see. I think uh, identity management and access control are the biggest are the biggest issues. So um, I often recommend folks not have not build their own authentication service and use something like JAW tokens and try to digitally sign that and so forth. Um, but instead, look at like an API gateway or a third party solution that can help with that. Um, if you're using like a service mesh type of architecture, you're using the sidecar concept. Um, you know, maybe like an Envoy proxy or something like that, a plugin so that can help abstract away a lot of that logic. It's not to suggest that teams can't build these, but like why, right? It's a standardized thing. Just you know, leverage something that someone else used, provided it goes through some rigorous testing beforehand that you feel comfortable about from a risk perspective. Um, outside of that, um, I don't think there's much more to add. I think those those are pretty pretty good coverage that you provided. Yeah. So, um, Circling back to metrics, so like you're driving a lot of our decision making. Um, one, of the, one of the things I wanted to do for this conversation was um, I, I took some screenshots and I apologize, folks. I'm not a graphic designer, so these are I did not capture the screenshots the most elegant way. Uh, but I took a screenshot of some of the more common widgets, uh, dashboard widgets that our customers use. And I just want to kind of talk through them, uh, get your perspective on you know, what would you do if you saw something like this? What might this mean to you? Um, that sort of thing. Is this so going to be really scary? <laughs> <laughs> so this this is the first one that we have. Um, and this, this shows um, the number of open vulnerabilities by severity over time. Right? I think this is, this is probably the number one widget that I think everybody uses, Tronzo customer or not. And so, um, you know, looking at this, we can see that you know on the, the left-hand side, uh, the numbers you know are, are somewhat flat to suggest that the number of open vulnerabilities is relatively steady. So we're not increasing, which is good. Theoretically, we're fixing them at the rate that we're introducing them. So flat is better than up. But then once we get into the March and April timeframe, we go up a lot. So you know, if you put on like your your Sherlock Holmes type of investigative hat and you saw something like this, what are some like follow up actions or thoughts or, or that would go through your mind with this sort of data? Okay, so my first question would be: Did we get a bunch of new tools? 
and scan a lot of new things with new tools. And that's why there's a jump. So those vulnerabilities were already there, but we didn't see them before. Interesting. Or do we just hire a pen tester for the first time? I've seen some companies where they got an AppSec person that's like red teamer all the way. And they're just like hacking. Oh, like you said, hackers going to hack. And they yeah. just are like smashing all of their apps in a way that their little automated tools couldn't do. Or someone left, like the head of AppSec, for instance, because I... I try to replace myself if I'm leaving somewhere or help them replace me. But I've had situations where I was not replaced and it went oh. right. Like they didn't think it was worth investing in getting another person. They're like, oh, everything's fine now, Tanya cleaned up that mess. And it's like, well, it doesn't mean there's not going to be more mess. Right. And so maybe the AppSec person left or maybe like the tools, I don't know, a jump like that doesn't seem like tool sets doing slightly more tests. It sounds like adding additional tests. What do you, what would you see when you look at this? Yeah, I think, I think those are great examples. I, 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 there were several of them that I didn't even think of. Like the one where like you have a personnel change. I mean, you know, hearing it out loud, it's like, yeah, that, that'll have a big impact. But that certainly was not the first thing that came to mind for me. Um, for something like this, additional tools definitely comes to mind. The other thing that, that comes to mind is um, just coverage and adoption of assets. So, you know, adopting additional tools is one thing, but sort of another perspective on that is like, you know, we were doing 10 assets before, but now we're doing 50. What does that mean? And so that sort of context about context, if you will, this is like an inception example, um, is helpful because when you do a report to like execs or C-level folks and you got the pretty dashboards, you have to add context to something like this. Like, hey, you know, in April, we introduced three new testing tools across 10 new assets. So like, that's why we have a jump. We're, we're obtaining visibility. We're not necessarily doing worse. We're just understanding where we are, um, which is a really helpful conversation to have. The other thing that kind of catches, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Um, no, 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 please continue. Yeah. So, so the other thing that uh, that comes to mind with something like this is like, um, I like to kind of drill down and be like, you know, actually, this relates to the story you shared in the beginning. So we're coming first circle for this presentation. What assets are actually, you know, having these the most of these issues? And so obviously, these are um, demo assets. These are not actual customer names, but this is one of the more more common ones where it's a widget that simply says, you know, what are the, the what at, what are the top 10 assets with the most vulnerabilities? And so looking at this spread, I mean, one thing that really stands out for me is like, you know, this app, the source code repository, which is an asset for us, that's one example. This source code repository um, has a significantly more vulnerabilities than the other. So like one thing I might do is, you know, and, and actually this goes back to your PHP point, like let's train that development team on secure coding. What technologies are they using? Because if we want to get the most bang for the buck, maybe we start there. I don't know, what do you think? So I really like this. I really like the idea of knowing exactly what the most, um, the nightmare list, like the what night, the yep. things are that are the scariest. I also I really liked your interpretation of the last slide, the data where you're like, oh, maybe we actually had really terrible coverage before with our tools and now we finally finished the rollout in March and then we see, oh, this huge spike in March, how terrible were they? It's like, no, we were more awesome in March. Our team did more work. Um, I like this. I also like the idea of being able to see, so like seeing threats overall is nice, but like you said, if you can spend the most time on 
critical systems, like important systems that have business value or handle money, et cetera. And then also the ones with the most vulnerabilities, that's also really good. I like that. I also saw a question in the chat that I was wondering if we could just briefly touch on, which is Absolutely. how does an ASOC relate to an ASPM? And this is a new term from Gartner. And so can I give my definition and then you can tell me how wrong I am? Because I don't work at Gartner. Yes, please go for it. <laughs> Okay, so in ASOC, application security, um, orchestration and correlation is like a dashboard where it sucks in tons of stuff from different tools and lets you see that data effectively and helps you track things, make reports, et cetera. Whereas an ASPM does that, but it also includes the tools. So it has the tools, it's like you have a big toolbox with it. And so it's probably gonna cost way more. This is what I think. What do you think, Eric? Yeah, I, I like that. I'll extend that a bit. Um, so, you know, Gartner recently released their um, in, an insights report speaking to ASPM, the Application Security Posture Management Systems. And in their definition, they describe it as like sort of a natural evolution of ASOC. And so if you think of ASOC as like the thing where all the security tools and security vulnerabilities come into, and ASPM has that plus data from other systems and services uh, that we don't normally think of as uh, you know, being security related, but that add meaningful context so you can better prioritize, you can establish uh, policies and security preventative controls within those systems, uh, and at the end of the day, get more bang for your buck. Um, a great example of that, just using this slide, this, this picture here, these assets are actually GitHub repositories. So, you know, unless you're using GitHub security testing services, and you know, that's certainly an option, if you're just using it for source code management and you connect to this, your ASPM can actually pull out information about who wrote the code. So suddenly you're correlating vulnerabilities that were found from security tools matched with the actual individuals who wrote the code. So now you actually have security ownership. Right, that's a great example of the kind of thing you can get with an ASPM these days. So I appreciate you calling out that question. So one other thing that while you're talking, I thought of for this slide is like when you look at it like this, you can see who owns that repo. So sometimes maybe this sounds silly, but often like I'm a consultant. I don't know who owns what. I don't know that that's Jarrett's and that's Jerry's. Right. And so I'll go into GitHub and I'll look that up and then I'll see who the owner is or who's the most recent person to check code. And I'm like, hi, Jenny, I need to talk to you. And not all their names start with J, but basically like it can help you figure out like who, what contributor or what dev or what team owns that. So you can go work with them immediately as opposed to like, I don't know about you, but sometimes I can find it hard to like, oh, there's some link that someone's given me. I don't know who to talk to. But if you yeah. know where the code is stored, then you can track who works on it a lot easier. Absolutely. I think that that's a great example. Um, and I, that might actually lead into the last slide I have, which is I think we're running uh, running up on time, but I want to make sure we give you a chance to, to speak to this. So like, you know, based on your experience, what are some other metrics uh, that you use to either drive action or success with organizations when you're consulting with them? Okay, so I have a list and some of them are like really standard that everyone tracks. Like how long does it take us to find a vulnerability? And then how long does it take us to fix it? Right, so if we're finding stuff in the code stage and it's like never making it even into the CICD or not yeah. even into the code repository, like that's spectacular, right? But if it takes us, you know, seven weeks after it's in prod on average to find one, it's like, ooh, how can we try to get that down to before we get into prod? Is that possible? Um, 
I also, so I am told that not a lot of people do this, but I am a big goal setter. And so when I work with a company or a team, I'm like, I want us to set goals for our AppSec program. And then I want us to measure every like 90 days, usually against those goals and be like, what's working and what's not working? Like what's getting us closer to that? Are we getting closer? You know, if we're doing four different activities, is one of them not really like adding up very well? And oh, this other one's really, really working. Let's do more of that. And so if you have a baseline security posture or like a goal that you've set of where you want to be, how much closer are you to it? And do you think you're on track to making it? And I find management really likes that, but I do it for me because I won't reach my goals if I don't set goals. Right. And if your outside programs just like make stuff more secure, I'm like, okay, well, that's nice. Like if you just fix one bug, you've succeeded, but that doesn't make your AppSec program good, right? And so it's like, what's the most important thing to the business owner? What's the most important thing to the CISO or the BISO or whoever that you're reporting to? And kind of like cramp, hopefully those two are similar. Um, And then see, and like sometimes the thing that's most important to them is not a thing that I feel is important. Like a a lot of CEOs or executives, not security professionals are like, we have to be able to respond to zero days. They're being exploited in the wild in under 12 hours. I'm like, you have a thousand criticals in prod. Like, really? You want me to spend all my time on that? I'm like, okay. Um, So yeah, I also like to track or do you want to give some? Because I'll just talk all day. I want to hear what no, you have to you're, say. You're good. I'll just I'll just say that the goal one I think is fantastic because I mean if you can get everybody to have sort of consensus on where we ultimately want to be, then you have something to measure by. And so like if you're working, you can actually you know with data support your value add or the value add of the program that you're sponsoring. Which you know in today's world, being able to justify value is very important. Yes. Especially if you're a consultant and you want to get renewed. Um, So another another thing I try to do, and this is like the hardest one, is like if I make a service level agreement for the AppSec team with the software developers, like we'll answer your questions within three business days. So I find it really hard to keep up with emails um, because there'll be, you know, a thousand of them and one of me. And often I'm like the more devy of the people on the AppSec team. So more questions will come to me than the other ones because I'll be like, oh, here's the code for that. And that's not a response they're getting from the other ones. So so we'll ask her. And so then I try to measure if I'm keeping up. And I remember at Microsoft, my boss, I kept arguing, you know, we need another security developer advocate. And he's like, I agree, but I need math. I need data. If I'm going to prove that I need another resource. And so he's like, make a folder called can't. And every time you can't do something, you can't complete something, or you can't take on a new task, put it in there. And then eventually we'll come up with like, these are the projects Tanya couldn't be a part of because she's doing all these other things. She's doing good work. But what we're saying is we need two, at like two security folks on this team, not one, or we won't be able to do stuff like this. And it never occurred to me because I don't want to make a list of things I could not do because it makes me feel like, oh, I suck. Yeah. <laughs> um, so if you can like prove, so if you have service level agreements, you could say like, I'm desperately trying to do this and I'm not meeting my service level agreements. So one, are service level agreements like completely unrealistic? Yeah. Like we'll answer in one business day. Like I once had an SLA of one hour 
But that was because it was during the election and it was only for the chief electoral officer. And he's like the big guy running the election across the entire country. <laughs> so if he needs something from me, it's like during business hours, within one hour, super reasonable because he's the big guy. Yeah. <laughs> but generally, it's like it's a longer SLA. And so am I meeting my promise to them before I go smashing on them for not meeting their SLA to us? Does that make sense? Because sometimes they're like, yeah, I didn't fix that bug. I emailed you about it two weeks ago and you never answered. And I don't know which thing I'm supposed to use. I didn't want to guess. And I'm like, oh no, it's my fault. Because <laughs> when I, I look through and they're not meeting their SLAs, I found like at least 20% of the time it was my team's fault. Like, oh. So I try to make sure I'm on top of things. Like, I, um, what is the word? I don't want to be the pot calling the kettle black. Ah, yep, um, yep. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I also uh, try to. Oh, sorry. Yes. No, you're good. But you're good. Go ahead. I like to try to detect. So, am I detecting new types of vulnerabilities? Like, am I increasing the coverage of the types of vulnerabilities we can find? So, if you get like a new tool, or you um, uh, sometimes tools add new tests to themselves, so you've upgraded or updated your tool. Or sometimes you're testing from a new vantage point and your comment about coverage, are we actually testing everything or just some things? Right. I don't only care what three of the apps are about. And quite often when I'm instructed, they're like, just work on these three. And I'm like, well, respectfully, I'd like to spend half of my time working on the other 97 because the whole thing represents your company. Right. Um, so this is one that might interest you, and this is one I have never been able to do as a consultant, only as an employee. And this is after education on a specific topic, do instances of it go down? So new instances, are there any or zero from now on? And old instances, are they getting fixed? So my first one was cross-site scripting, and I was like, we had cross-site scripting in 100% of the apps that I looked at at that place. And I was like, so we did a deep dive and not all of them got fixed, but they stopped making new ones and some of the old ones got fixed. And I was like, yes. That's um, <laughs> so if you can do education and then measure after and then see, like we got return investment on that training, but as a trainer, I've never been able to produce that because I'm like, you didn't give me metrics before and you didn't give me like, and also, clients don't want to give me that data to share with other potential customers. That's There's no value in it for them to give me that, right? Yeah. It's only valuable for me as someone trying to sell training. But if you have an internal training program that you're running, you want to see if it's working. Yeah. So, so from a metrics and success perspective, like having all the data at one spot so you can pinpoint when you started initiative and then pinpoint mm -hmm. when that issue is over, over, you can go look back and say, look, did, did this change at all? Do we see any change? And if so, is it in the right direction? Um, 100% with training. And yeah, a lot of organizations are focusing on specific vulnerability classes, trying to stamp them out completely. So, hey, are we introducing that, that vulnerability less, if not zero? Are the ones that we had going getting remediated faster? Like that's great evidence of the success of a program. For sure. Yeah. And cool. I have more metrics, but I'm feeling like we have more things we want to talk about. Cause I'll just I'll go on and on, Eric. It'll be terrible. Yeah, no no worries. I appreciate it. And um, so then we'll have to book another one of these and, and continue the conversation. Yeah.
Um, yeah, I think for the sake of time that uh, you know we've wrapped up uh, for this webinar, um, I want to thank uh, you know, everybody who joined. I want to thank Tanya from We Hack Purple. It's always a pleasure chatting with you. Um, the insights, I, I've definitely walked away learning something new today, so that's always cool. Uh, and to everyone else, thank you. My name is Eric Sheridan, uh, Chief Innovation Officer over here at Tromso. Appreciate your time. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Future of Application Security. If you've enjoyed this episode or you are new to the show, I'd love to have you subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss any episode. And if you like the podcast, I'd be grateful if you can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Thank you for listening.